Welcome back to The Light Pod. I'm your host, Sam Corbel, and today we're doing a little bit more reflection on some of those early episodes that we published, you know, back when The Light Pod got started. And maybe you just haven't had the chance to dive in or sink your teeth into it, or should I say, kick back, relax, toss those headphones in your ears, and enjoy something that really gets you excited about what's coming in the future of our entire industry. This episode was originally aired in April. It's with Jay Ratten, a VP at WSP. He talked a lot about what it means to be smart in a building and how it's not something you install, rather it's something that you create and design. What's interesting about this episode is it really reminds us how important lighting is, but how it's all of a sudden plugging into so many more things than maybe just that switch on a wall. And the purpose lighting might serve moving forward, well, it could also be broader, bigger, and more large scale. I really enjoyed this episode and I really enjoyed talking to Jay because this is the future. This is forward thinking. Enjoy. Welcome to The Light Pod, brought to you by LightEye, a hub for ideas, education, and well, a little bit of entertainment. I'm your host, Sam Corbel. And today we are lucky to have Jay Ratten in the studio. Jay is a vice president at WSP and a smart strategist for the built environment, both inside and outside. Jay brings to us a storied career of lighting design and has transitioned into an opportunity to explore how technology comes into play and how this industry and construction is transforming really from beginning to end. Jay, welcome to the podcast. How are things going? They're going well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Welcome to Denver. I know you drove down from the mountains. You're living up at like 8,000 feet, probably enjoying summer and avoiding this 90 degree heat. Absolutely. Getting those bike ride-ins now that we're working from home. Yeah, working from home, a novel concept, isn't it? (laughs) No, it's good. It's good to have you here. How many uh, bike rides have you been on this summer, by the way? All of them. All of them. So what's that, like 6,432? Something in that range. Yeah, 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 yeah. And each one is about 100 miles too, right? Absolutely. If you want to go on a mountain bike ride, you can just come out to Colorado and give Jay a call. I'm sure he'll show you a couple good trails. That's mountain biking, by the way, right? No road biking for you. A little bit of road biking, but mountain biking is more fun. All right, that's cool. Well, Jay, who is Jay Ratton? How did you get started in lighting and what's your passion these days? So Jay Ratton is me. I I live in Colorado, as you said, and my first entry into this whole game that we're playing was architecture. You know, as a kid, I loved buildings. I loved drawings. I loved cartoons. I loved model rockets. And ultimately that landed me at an architectural engineering program, which funnily enough seems to be an entry for a lot of lighting designers into this market. And uh, I I found lighting in college and, and just fell in love with this kind of mix of the art and the science of the things that we do. Rock chalk. Rock chalk, exactly. And so started a career working in lighting design and figured out what I liked and what I didn't like. And one of the interesting things that happened for me is LED. As we saw our industry shift to a much more digitally native light source, interesting things started to happen. And for me, that was that these lights started to become little computers and little computers can do more than just light. And I noticed that we were seeing a kind of transition in the market where the things that the lights could do became, depending on who you ask, and I know a lot of lighting designers listen to this, so they're not gonna say as important, but 
maybe nearly as important as the light that they create for the space they're in. So I started to think a lot about the opportunity to rethink digital, if we want to call it that, as part of the design process in lights. And that grew into a design process holistically about the building. What does that digital fabric look like as we're designing it? So when you talk about that digital fabric and all this technology that's really being injected into a source, a design tool, where is that today and what's piqued your interest and kind of allowed you to maybe pivot into a more broad scope in terms of analyzing the built environment? I think that we are at the start of a design ethos or process around buildings that is much more digital than it has been. We need to start to think about the reasons why we're building these buildings. And ultimately, the reasons why we're building these buildings is for the people in them, right? We're creating an environment, whether it's a building or a city or a neighborhood, where people are supposed to be happy, healthy, enjoying life and working effectively, et cetera. Our lives are becoming much more digital. And by virtue of the fact that you and I have a mobile phone sitting in front of both of us, we're sort of used to this digital persona that is us and our expectation of data and interaction with systems has grown immensely over the last couple of years. Let's say last decade. I'm going to pull you back because like you said, the built environment is there for people, but there's something that comes before the built environment and that's the desire to have that. And while people may end up at these spaces, somebody has to come up with that vision and that's the designer, but then somebody has to finance that. Somebody has to approve it. You're diving into almost that pre-side of even the experience and trying to help people understand what it is they may even be able to think about creating. Talk to me a little bit about that. Well, you're absolutely right. Many times clients don't build a lot of buildings. I mean, the advantage of working for a firm that does design is we think about it all the time. And so in many ways, we're leading our clients through a journey that is part of the process of creating this space. And they may have an idea of what they want to create. But to be able to come in and take them on that journey, help them understand the business value, right? Why invest in certain things? What's the ROI going to look like for these experiences versus these other experiences? How do you create a unique space that people want to come to again and again and again? And then ultimately to translate that into a set of design documents, instructions for buildings, building that we're going to build. When somebody says, hey, I want to build a building, what percentage of the time have they done it before? That's a good question. I think it's probably 50-50. It feels like the company they work for may have built a building before, but it may be their first building that they're creating. I would say more we see kind of large developers of buildings that do it all the time. And then small developers of buildings who do it occasionally. And they're both really interesting as clients because large developers know what they want. You know, the Heinzes, the Brookfields, the Tishman Spires, the Boston properties, they've got hundreds of buildings in portfolio. And so we work with those kind of guys and they know roughly what they want to do and they understand the market, but they're really keen to figure out what these digital experiences look like. The smaller developers are much more, I think, locally focused. They're part of the neighborhood fabric. You mentioned the guy that owns the building where we are here today, owns the whole block, has lived here his, you know, maybe his entire adult life. I don't know. I'm making that up, but no, they're really... He has, you're right. They're really connected to the neighborhood. They know less about, you know, sort of what's current and the most fancy eye-catching feature for the new properties that are happening wherever, some CBD in Australia or whatever. But they really care about the community. And so I would say we it's not a direct answer to your question, but I would say developers fall into those two categories. Let's talk about them both. 
the people that have an idea, they're going to come to you with a pretty strong vision. The people that don't have an idea are also going to come to you with a pretty strong vision, but the lack of background or, or maybe the overzealous to drive what they've done in the past, there's a fault to maybe both sides of it. So, so much is going on in the built environment and construction and technology. Let's dive into the data behind that and how technology is plugging in, how that LED that you talked about isn't just a light source anymore. We're putting thousands, maybe even millions of computers in a space. What's happening? What's happening is exciting, right? Let's call it a digital fabric, this sensory network. If you think of historically, we have buildings and they have bones, structure, and they have skin, you know, facade, walls, those sorts of things. I see digital as the nerves and the nerves are growing in strength and offering and complexity in these projects, which means that we can do cooler stuff. Why do we need cooler stuff in a building? That is a profound question. I think that we don't in many ways. Like, it's funny, if you were to come to my house, you would see that I'm kind of a Luddite. I don't have Alexa. I don't have I'm a lot of digital connectivity. And that's just how I've lived my life. But I think... There is a consumer expectation for connectivity that is driving this need. People have become used to their phone knowing how much traffic there is on the road or where their Domino's pizza is or what the last credit card transaction they had is or what the COVID case count was yesterday everywhere. So you have this kind of consumer base that expects connectivity and knowledge and data to flow. And I think that's driving a need for our built environment to respond. So it's more um, what we experience is driving us to say, hey, I got all this cool technology around me. Why do I just walk into a building where there's just doors and light switches? Why doesn't the projector drop out of the ceiling automatically? Why doesn't the toilet flush itself? Where's my fresh coffee when I get to my desk? You know, automate everything. It's the world we're living in. You mentioned the smartphones. I mean, we all have thousands of dollars in our pockets every single day and we do rely on them. But there is all this technology it's not necessarily being implemented correctly. What's missing in design today? Well, I want to stay on the driving point and, and then I'll tell you what's missing. I think ultimately what drives all of this is people want to control their environment. They want to be in control. They want license over what's happening to them. And they have that in many parts of their lives. But one of the slides I often use with clients is you walk into a commercial property and there's a thermostat with a box over it. You can't adjust the temperature. You're talking about that clear box the clear box on the side of the it. The clear yeah. box, yeah. right? And yeah. so we have these kind of, particularly on the commercial side, these buildings that are not interacting in a meaningful fashion with their users. And I think users see that. I think what's missing is a design process ethos around how the building will interact with its users in a digital fashion. And it needs to almost ride in parallel with the physical. It, you can't separate the two, but I think it's important to think about them both. I think we should define how buildings interact with people quickly because that's evolved. And when you look at the design process today, we typically will lay out a schematic will try to articulate what is going to happen in the space. But for the most part, the doors open and close, the lights turn on and off. That's what we expect in our buildings in the past. But looking forward, as you talk about this digital fabric and putting computers in the spaces, there's that digital component. There's the data behind it. There's the programming, the pre-programming, the post-programming, you know, modifying it at certain times a day or based on user comments over a defined period of time. Are we into the evolution of, let's just call it a dumb building is gone and smart buildings are all we're going to build moving forward? Or? 
I think to call buildings dumb and smart is maybe oversimplifying, you know, the problem. I think that all of our buildings are becoming smarter every day. All the systems that ride within them are largely digitizing it. I think it's harder and harder to buy a BMS that doesn't use blue wires in some fashion, right? We see this sort of transition to the IT realm in many of the control systems. We're seeing it in lighting, like PoE lighting becoming potentially more prominent. Certainly at the controls level, they're all networked. So they're becoming smarter and smarter. And where I think we're missing an opportunity in the built environment to address this kind of user expectation we spoke about is to think about how all those now digitized systems plug together. What I think we're going to get is a place where the buildings run themselves a little bit more intuitively, right? They learn. If I was to talk about what I think a smart building is, it's a building that learns. It understands that people are coming in and it responds accordingly. You could argue like an ox sensor is a smart system. It sees someone came in the room, it turns the lights on. Yeah, at a very basic level, it's a smart system. Right. But what it doesn't do is tell anything else that it just saw someone come in. There are other systems that would love to know that someone that and maybe we don't even go someone, maybe we go so far as to say Jay is in the room. And then you start to see real value. Well, if Jay's in the room, how long has he been up? Maybe we should adjust the circadian programming for this to support his needs, not the general needs. Does Jay like it hot or cold? Does he like it loud or quiet? Right. You know, these are all questions that a connected smart building could start to intuitively respond to if they knew that someone was in the room and if the, maybe they even knew it was me. What's your take on someone versus something in a room and how that all plays into one system as well? I'm not sure what you mean by something. Like an object, not a human. Not a human. <laughs> Thank <Yeah>. you. <laughs> We're defining thing for me. <laughs> yeah. I think there are some things that don't breathe that are important. Interesting story. We have a lot of clients in the workplace going to an agile environment. So you don't have a desk. And there are obvious business strategy reasons around that. And I'm going to caveat this around. This was not pre-COVID. Post-COVID, we may end up with more personal desks in the short term. But yep. if you assume you don't have a desk, one of the challenges lots of our clients have is we don't want someone to have two desks. And what I mean by that is if Jay walks into the office and I dump my backpack on the desk and then I go to a meeting for three hours, I'm now occupying two desks. And so the things become important. And I've seen some really interesting systems coming online that can detect presence of person without the person's there. So the system sees that there's a bag on the desk. And so someone's probably claimed it. And is that system like a camera or? In that case, it's a camera. Yeah. yeah. Well, I tell you what, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we can dive into that digital fabric. We can talk about some of the science behind it and really explore what it is that's going into the built environment that's creating these new opportunities. Sound good? Sounds good. Hey, real quick. This podcast is brought to you by LightEye, a new hub for ideas, education, and well, a little bit of entertainment when it comes to architectural lighting. Check them out at lytei.com. And welcome back. Over the break, Jay and I were chatting just a little bit more about that design process and how clients are itching to get a smart building, but they don't necessarily maybe know what that means. Jay, talk to me just a little bit more about what it means to design a smart building and maybe what the baseline knowledge is that people have today and how we can educate them. Sure. One of the funniest stories that actually is sort of the question you asked 
We had a client come to us and he said, I've read about these smart buildings. I want one. What is it? Right. And that kind of starts the discussion around like, well, how do you design one? Wait a second. It's like going to a car dealership and saying, I want a car, but does it have doors or a steering wheel? That's a great analogy, actually, because that's the response we get back. A lot of times clients are like, I want a smart building. How much does it cost? And my response is, if you wanted a car, how much does it cost? Well, there's a lot of variables in there, right? What do you want it to do? How fast should it go? How pretty is it? And all those things do apply pretty clearly to a smart building. So the way we typically start with a client is to think about experience and think about the types of outcomes that that client wants to achieve by having a smart building that they couldn't with their, let's call it a dumb building. We talked about those. So if we can start to develop the experience they want, now we won't know all the things that we're going to need to achieve. One of the fallacies I think of a smart building on the market is that it's future-proof. We can make a building as future-ready as we can, but ultimately we don't know what's going to happen in the future. And while we do focus on experience, a lot of what I coach clients to remember is, let's get the plumbing right. Let's get the digital plumbing in place because you don't know what kind of toilet you're going to need in 10 years, but we know it's going to need plumbing. And that's kind of how we approach smart. So let's start with experience. Let's say we talk to a client and say, hey, what are the kind of people that come to your building? What kind of building is it? Okay, it's a hotel. So you have guests, you have return guests, you have probably delivery people. You've got people that work there, facility maintenance, right? Let's build those personas. Those are the kind of people that come to the building. What are the outcomes we want to achieve through the smart building? What does that guest experience look like? When I walk in the front door, does the building welcome me on my phone? Is there a greeter there who recognizes me and my face and says, hello, Jay, in person? Can I open the door to my hotel room without ever having to go right to the front? Does the room remember the music I like, the temperature I like, and automatically pre-cool and set itself up for me because they know I'm coming? Those are the kind of things that we walk clients through. And what that does is enables us to build this kind of shared set of values about how being in the building will be. That drives digital. That then lets us come in and say, these are the kind of systems you're going to need to connect to generate the data to enable those experiences. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I'm sitting here and I'm like, is it Jade? pitching me a movie script from 2050, you know, like it's hard to believe that this is all here. It's all real. Everything you just mentioned, there probably is some way to achieve it or a form of it today. It's absolutely tw it's 2020. We build connected buildings every day. We take ethernet cables. We take computers. We put computers in things that didn't used to have computers in it. And we start to report data, 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 data. I mean, data driven. Talk to me a little bit about if you have all these systems, how, where does all that data go and how do you figure out how to sift through that data, make sense of that data? The data goes to the cloud, man. Oh yeah. It's like, it's white. It's about 30,000 yeah, feet up in the air. Exactly. Yeah, it goes obviously. to the cloud. Yeah. And then Steve Jobs just, you know, pushes a button and off we go. We have an answer, right? Getting it to the cloud's the hard part. Okay. So where does the data go? Well, let's take a data journey. Let's say I'm a light in a ceiling. And I have a sensor, whatever that sensor is. I was gonna say, what kind of sensor? We'll it, call it a sensor. It's a lighting sensor. So it detects ambient light level. Okay. And, so and occupancy happens? and temperature. Yes. Yeah. But maybe I also know location. Okay. I know where I am and what phones are connected to my Bluetooth signal. Okay. So I have these signals, these signals, I'm recording them on my little edge processor. Edge would be what we would call that device. It sits out at the edge of the network. Okay. That data is going to 
probably wirelessly go back to a gateway that rides on the lighting control system. That gateway probably has a blue cable coming into it that goes back to some sort of server in the basement. And when you say blue cable, you mean just a data cable? Correct. Yep. A data cable. There's other ways the architecture could look, but this is a pretty typical one. That server in the basement is collecting all the data from all those different sensors, right? And it's also, and this is really important, injecting metadata into the system. What is metadata? So metadata is the information that tells you what the system our sensor is and means. Okay. So a zero or a one of 50 that comes in on a signal is not very important unless you know that that 50 is a temperature sensor and its temperature sensor is in Celsius or Fahrenheit. 50C and 50F are very different. Absolutely. Right. So that's the metadata. The other kind of things that are really important are like, well, where is the sensor? What room is it in? What floor is it in? What system is it on? And so that data gets injected in typically at the server level. And that server pumps it generally up to the cloud. So you've got metadata to say what a device is and what it does. And, and then, then you've got live data of that what is it's seen. giving you an input of what it's seen. Correct. Got it. That and goes into the server up to the cloud at 30,000 feet. What happens from there? Now, one thing that we may want to talk about is who's cloud. Great. Who's cloud, Jay? It really Sam's depends. Cloud? Sam's cloud. Okay. Sam's cloud. Let's go to Sam's exactly. cloud. Exactly. You need that. You need a club membership to get into Sam's cloud, if I yeah, remember right. Absolutely. So a lot of vendors out there have created their own clouds, and that's important because they have to sell a vertically integrated solution that does some sort of secret sauce analytics in the cloud with the data they know about from their system. What's an example of one of those vendors? I'm just curious. So like we could pick on say Cooper's Trellix platform. Okay. Right, so Cooper has a platform, they pull data from their light fixtures, it goes up into the cloud and does stuff around space utilization. I think they might have a real-time location service. I'm not sure, but yep. they have stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Other ways that it could go is to go to a client's cloud. And where we're seeing probably a shift in the industry is that the value of a smart building's data is increased if it is commingled with other data. Right. So other data in the smart building or just data? Both. So say we were able to connect data from the lighting control system and the BMS and the security, all the elevators, right? All the different motorized shades, all that data becomes useful when it pulls together. Because now I know that, for example, indoor air quality is good or bad when someone is in there. And I know they're in there because the occupancy sensor system on the lighting control knows that but the air quality sensor might ride on the BMS. So a lot of what we try to do is get that data into a common like data lake or data integration platform where we can start to do things with it together. So you have data that comes from different systems. Maybe you have data input of the people that are in the space because you can ID them from the badge or tag that they have. Correct. You bring that all together. You mentioned you could use a vendor's cloud, but people are actually building their own server cloud for their building for their company that's not necessarily proprietary to them but tuned to their needs correct and what it also lets them bring in is other business intelligence so now they can lay in things like this is the portfolio that we have this is the building that we own these are the people that are in it the departments they report to their salaries their sick time if we're going to look at you know does this healthy building decrease sick time for employees like knowing that information that business data becomes also really helpful because what's the most expensive thing in your building the people the people the people so we see a real shift and that's why i started with experience on why we design smart buildings 
Yes, they're great for optimizing your efficiency and hitting your sustainability goals and maybe even increasing your maintenance resiliency, right? The next level is sort of thinking about how do we optimize the space? How do we minimize empty rooms, et cetera? But ultimately, the salaries you're paying the employees in an office far outweigh all the other things. And making them just a little bit happier, just a little bit more efficient, making them stay at your company just a little bit longer is worth so much. Now, we're talking a lot about data here, Jay. Where's the data that says making people a little bit happier provides so much more value? That data is sometimes hard to get. Okay. And I would say it's one of the biggest challenges we have when we talk about smart buildings is what's the value? What's the payback? Because if I'm going to spend $10 million to put all this technology to make my building smart, it needs to return me more than $10 million in productivity. Exactly. What we typically do is build a business case. And there is research around, you know, healthy buildings result in less sick time, these efficiency measures result in less utility bills, et cetera, et cetera. But we build a business case that says something like, if I save all the people in the C-suite two minutes in setting up the video conference in the meeting room, and they have this many meetings a month or year, and their salaries are worth this much, you can start to build a business case quite quickly that these systems are worth considering. This integration is worth considering. Absolutely. And I think the most fascinating part is we're just getting started. There's an opportunity in the AEC industry, in the built environment, both inside and outside, to start to teach people this isn't a movie script anymore. It's 2020 and we can do it. So how do we get people to maybe even just understand what is out there and what's doable? Or is it you can dream it, we can build it? I think one of the really important things is, and I'll give credit to a friend of mine over at Gensler for this quote, smart is not something you install. This is not something we just bring in at the end. I think when you start programming a building, when you start with that client's mission or vision for what they want to achieve, you need to think about what the digital component of that will look like. And it could be something simple like facility maintenance, or it could be something really complex like customer experience. It's important that we remember that digital doesn't just happen. Smart doesn't just happen accidentally. It needs to be intentional, just like the walls are where you intended them to be and the spaces look and feel like you thought they would be. The way the building's digital fabric is created also needs to be intentional. You said the word programming, and I think that's a fascinating word because in design, it means a lot to most people. Programming is what you do to your VCR. What you do. What the heck is a VCR? <laughs> yes. Talk to me a little bit about what programming means from start to finish in design. Well, I'm not going to try to cover that entire topic, and it's probably not even something I can cover well. But for me, I think programming means really figuring out the client's business case, business needs. So an owner wants something. They want a building or some sort of built environment that achieves outcomes. So programming is kind of translating those desired outcomes into, you know, sort of the physical and digital ramifications or needs to support that desire. How long does it take the nurse to walk from the nurse's station to the patient room? How frequently do they do that? How do we minimize that time? Because that time affects business operations downstream. And so like adjacencies are something you hear used a lot in programming. And you can program for adjacencies, but then you can put technology in a building and make it smart measure and monitor that, operate more efficiently in that building, but use that data to go build the next one. Yeah, we're seeing a really interesting time where design automation, I think, is going to be fascinating. This idea that 
we approach every building as if we've never built another building blows my mind. How many buildings does my firm build in a year? How many million square feet do the big architectural firms program in a year? Surely we can learn from those. Surely we can build a kind of meta model of what successful offices feel like and start there. Probably not the question you were asking, but I think it'll be really interesting to watch these kind of computationally derived buildings sort of inform, augment the creative process that we also go through. I think there's a lot of fear around artificial intelligence or machine learning or some sort of algorithm coming in and taking my job, but I see it as it frees me up to spend the time that I have on the things that add value and not spend time drawing circles on plans. So we're looking at design automation. We're looking at people's jobs. We've talked about healthcare. We've talked about office space. The built environment has many, many uses. But there's one thing that's for sure is given the pandemic that we've gone through recently and are still experiencing, the social interaction of humans is being distanced. The value of a space is changing. How does smart buildings and smart solutions play into all of that? maybe where it's installed right now and also moving forward with future construction. Obviously, everything that's happened in the past few months in many cases is horrifying and alarming and scary. But there is, I think, a silver lining on the cloud. That is, it's caused our industry to kind of reassess why we did what we do. The way we were building buildings is being reevaluated across the market. In many ways, that's super exciting because it makes us kind of re- integrate the things that we could be doing with the things that we were doing. And I think that we'll see a fair amount of change going forward as everyone tries to settle on whatever the new normal or better normal is for their business. Smart is going to play a big component of that. Technology is going to play a big component of that. The clients we had that had implemented some level of smartness within their buildings I think are really seeing the value. The business as usual changed quickly. Right. We have a lab up in Boulder and we've got, as an example, a bunch of occupancy sensors that detect people and desks and stuff to be able to see the cliff that we fell off in terms of number of people coming into work and where they were at when we hit what mid-March. And now that we've reopened, starting to see whether people feel safe coming back. And if they do, when they're in the office, where do they go? What do they do? Do they stay apart? Do they congregate? We can learn so much by looking at the data that comes from a smart building about how people feel comfortable in the space in this new normal that I think it makes owners that have made that investment really agile and resilient to what was a fairly large, quick change. I think as a result, we'll see an acceleration of this kind of technology in combination with, frankly, margins getting tight. The efficiency and the value proposition around integrating these systems, consolidating them, et cetera, is going to, I think, run in parallel with this kind of more heightened awareness of wanting to know what's happening in building and tune them correctly. You said something interesting that goes to the tune of you've got a lab and you're monitoring all this stuff. That lab's your office space. It is, yeah. (laughs) It's incredible. I mean, the people that are in your office know this is there and they're comfortable with it. That's a use case right there. Do you feel like you guys did this not knowing what would come out of it? I mean, you said you can't plan for the future, but you can be ready for the future. And there are some clients who have also taken that investment. What else is happening that people you think might be looking into to plan for the future given the fact that we've all been basically shocked. Mm. 
did we take a risk on the lab? No, I think we needed to understand what the space looks like. This is new. Anybody who says they've got it all figured out, I think they don't. So a couple of cool things are emerging that are pretty interesting. One of them is this idea, and I was talking about it on the drive down here, in fact, of touchless. You know, I think we're all coming out of this with PTSD a little bit about touching stuff. And no one's going to touch an elevator button the same, particularly no one that's lived through this. And so we see this really interesting space around how do we move the things that we used to touch on the walls that were, let's call it communal, to the thing in our pocket that we're comfortable touching? And that's going to be really interesting to see. Some of the early things I've seen show up is like, how do we deal with elevator buttons? And I've seen crazy stuff like a, a little container full of toothpicks hung on the wall so you can like push the button. Walk around with a pocket full of Q-tips. Yeah. yeah. But I think this idea that your phone becomes your sort of proxy is going to be interesting as clients look at this. Our firm, in fact, implemented a survey that all employees have to take before they come into the office that is on your phone and you say, you know, have I been sick and do I have a temperature and all these kind of things. And then it tells you whether you're safe to come into the office. I think we'll see a lot of that. We'll see implementation of technology to take some of the fear and anxiety away from the experience that we remember. The other thing that's really interesting is this idea of virtual queuing. And maybe queuing is just a fancy English word for standing in line. And we saw this happening in restaurants. Like if you remember February and you and I were talking about the last night my wife and I had out here before the, the whole thing happened. We went to a restaurant here in downtown Denver, went to the front desk. They had a line, which we entered digitally. And then we went to a bar and drank. And when it was our turn, right, we got the text message and went. Imagine that applied to a building. So we don't have to stand in line together, but we can ask for something. And when it's our turn, we get to go do it. So say it was a coffee in the coffee room, or I'd like to have a private phone call. Please let me know when a meeting room is available. Or I'd like to go into the office today let me know if there's enough desks to maintain social distancing so I don't drive down there and find out we're full. This idea of standing in line virtually is going to be, I think, a real quick uptake in the industry. All of this sounds amazing. And I think we all agree that it's possible. It can happen. And it just takes a little bit of technology and some blue cables and a lot of design and a lot of thinking ahead of time. What are you doing at WSP and what is the team around that doing to try and maybe fast track this or elevate this opportunity for building owners? We've got a team that we spun up. This has been a few years now, but really, I think hitting our stride, that is a cross-cutting team of folks that have expertise in networks and BMS systems, lighting control systems, access control, and all the kind of things that our firm is good at, combined with a sort of business consulting and experience driven mentality that I spoke about earlier. Sometimes I call it a SWAT team, but really we try to come in early on a project and help vision this kind of stuff with a client and really put down in layman's terms and then translate it into engineering terms, the kind of things that are gonna be necessary to pull this off. We're super excited about the work that we do. I think one of the things I love about our team and frankly about the firm is that we get involved in so many interesting projects and there's kind of a cascade effect. The more interesting projects you're in, the more interesting things you learn about and the more you can apply them to the next project. And when you say interesting project, I've just, I've got to ask, you guys are WSP, you're huge. What's an interesting project to you today? An interesting project is one where the client has a clear mission and is open, to be frank, to seeing us as part of the creation of that mission. I think 
sometimes, you know, the owner just wants to build a building and flip it. That is not interesting in my view. I love owner operators. I love somebody who wants to make an improvement in the community and that they're going to make an investment for the long term and that they have a mission of what they want to achieve. So as an example, um, yesterday I got to present to a client who's going to build a massive hospital in New Zealand and they want that hospital to be positioned for the future. They want to enable the Maori tribe to feel comfortable coming in. They want to connect to the community. They want to improve wellness and they want it all to be digital. That's an exciting project. Next month, we open Raiders Stadium in Las Vegas. Those are exciting projects. They don't all have to be billion and a half dollar projects, but I do think those projects share something in common, which is that they're trying to make an impact. This has been an awesome conversation. I'd love to continue it with you more and maybe have, you know, back and continue this discussion. But where can uh, people get in touch with you if they have more questions? You can find uh, me on our website, WSP.com. You can find me on LinkedIn under Jay Ratten. And uh, you can email me at j.ratten, which is W-R-A-T-T-E-N at WSP.com. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time today, Jay. Take care. Uh, stay healthy. Talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's Sam. Real quick. If you enjoyed this podcast, then do me a favor. Head back to the platform that you listen to and click like or subscribe. That's the best way to never miss an episode of The Light Pod, where we interview people who are all things lighting, building technology, curious about the future, and honestly, just have fun stories to tell. Until then, see ya. Thank you.